Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. Jennifer Say is an American author, filmmaker, business executive, and retired gymnast. She was the 1986 U.S. Gymnastics National Champion and seven-time member of the U.S. Women's National Team. Her first memoir, Chalked Up, was published in 2008 and detailed the systemic abuse of children in the sport of gymnastics. She also produced an Emmy Award-winning documentary film called Athlete A that was published in 2020. Jennifer began her career at Levi Strauss & Company as a marketing assistant in 1999, rising through the ranks to chief marketing officer and then global brand president. In January of 2022, she was asked to resign because of her vocal opposition to the extended closure of San Francisco public schools and was offered a million-dollar severance package to keep quiet about all that she experienced. Spoiler alert, she turned down the money to tell her story. Set for release on November 15th, Say's latest memoir, Levi's Unbuttoned, not only recounts her rise up the corporate ladder and the events that led to her ouster, it also gives an unprecedented insider's view of the cruel hypocrisy that underpins woke capitalism. Jennifer is a mother of four and now resides in Denver with her family. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. Thank you, Jennifer Say, for joining me on True 30 today. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, as I mentioned to you briefly on uh, off camera, is that I knew of you from my industry. I spent 20 years in the advertising and media business. So I knew of you from afar, specifically in your role as CMO and president of Levi's. And we even pitched you for your global brand business in 2013. Um, we didn't win. We got second place. But I don't, I don't know exactly why. No, I don't think you, you were. I'm not sure if you were in the pitch. I wasn't in the pitch. We we're on the digital side. So I didn't make it to the actual final presentation. But uh, I digress. So in February of this year, um, I was on Barry Wise Substack called Common Sense. And I saw the number one article. Uh, to this day, it is still the number one article as far as reach and likes at 3,300, I think, and counting. And so I saw your face and read your article specifically about all the drama that unfolded with some COVID outreach you had in a personal life specific to your role as the then president of Levi's. So bear with me here for a second, because I know a lot of this is redundant for you, but okay. I want to make sure that my listeners understand the full width and breadth of the story specifically because it's such an impressive one. And I, wanna, I won't read the whole article, but I want to read excerpts that kind of capture the unnecessary drama that unfolded based on uh, your tenure at this historic institution, which is Levi's here in San Francisco. So in the letter, it starts out by saying, I turned down $1 million in severance in exchange for my voice, which is a very compelling <laughs> beginning. Um, I loved wearing Levi's. I wore them as long as I could remember. But if you had told me that I'd one day become the president of the brand, I would never have believed you. If you told me that after achieving all of this, after spending almost my entire career at one company, 
that I would resign from it. I think you were crazy. Today, I'm doing just that. Over my two decades at Levi's, I got married. I had two kids. I got divorced. I had two more kids. I got married again. The company has been the most consistent thing in my life. And until recently, I have always felt encouraged to bring my full self to work, including my political advocacy. The advocacy has always been focused on kids. In 2008, when I was vice president of marketing, I published a memoir about my time as an elite gymnast that focused on the dark side of the sport, specifically the degradation of children. The gymnastics community threatened me with legal action and violence. They called me a grifter and a liar. And Levi stood by me. More than that, they embraced me as a hero. Things changed when COVID hit. Early on in the pandemic, I publicly questioned whether schools had to be shut down. This didn't seem at all controversial to me. I wrote op-eds, appeared on local news, attended meetings with the mayor's office, organized rallies. I was called a racist, a very strange accusation given that I have two black sons. I was called a eugenist and a QAnon conspiracy theorist. In the summer of 2020, I finally got the call. You know when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company, came our corporate communications head told me. My title is not in my Twitter bio, I said. I'm speaking as a public school mom of four kids. Well, they didn't try to actually muzzle me outright. I was told repeatedly to think about what I was saying. And I shared my support about Elizabeth Warren and the Democratic Party and my great sadness about the racially instigated murders of Armand Arbery and George Floyd. No one at the company objected to that. But when I took a political stand on COVID, everything changed. We don't weigh in on hyperlocal issues, they told me. There's also a lot of potential negatives if we speak up strongly, starting with the fact that numerous executives have kids in private schools here in the city. I refused to stop talking. I called them hypocritical. I met with the mayor's office. And I, after living in San Francisco for 30 years, I moved my family to Denver so my kindergartner could finally experience real school. National media picked up on the story. And that's when I was asked to go on Laura Ingram's Fox News. And that's kind of where everything went sideways. So, or in the good place, it got you where you are today. And it says here that you were also accused of being anti-science, anti-fat specific to a tweet about the corollary between obesity and deleterious outcomes, about being anti-trans because the tweet shouldn't ditch Mother's Day for birthing person's day because it left out adoptive and stepmothers. And they called you a racist again. So I think what I really wanted to get across with that is that after 23 years as a celebrated executive at Levi's, and someone who'd shared their political beliefs previous, specific to Democrats. And you actually mentioned, which I forgot to write in here, a lot of your colleagues were going off on Donald Trump as being you know, the end all of our democracy. And it didn't seem to matter at that level. What, what do you think took place with COVID? Why was it such a sore spot for Levi's corporate communications department? Well, I mean, I, I will say, I think for me, what happened was I dissented from the democratic orthodoxy, which was everything needs to be closed. Schools need to be closed. Mm -hmm. And that was unacceptable. Up until that point, I had aligned. Uh, my political views were very much aligned uh, with the company, sometimes even further left. I mean, I, I supported Elizabeth Warren. Um, executives in the company did not. Um, you know, she was seen as bad for business, but it was okay. It was sort of acceptable because yeah. she was still a Democrat, you know, so it wasn't so far outside the bounds. And I was critical of Trump as well. Um, 
But I think what this illustrates is if you veer just one step outside, you have, you know, one little tiny bit of pushback and then suddenly you are a far right QAnon conspiracy theorist psychopath, um, which is where all the criticisms came from around, you know, all these, I was called all these unemployable things, you know, a racist and a eugenicist and anti-trans and all of these things with no sort of evidence to support any of those, those claims. I hadn't done anything um, that would support any of that. No one's offered any examples of behaviors that would illustrate that. And so for me, what I realized is because I pushed back on COVID restrictions, it was just sort of proof of a larger issue, which is you can't veer at all. You can't veer and and it was as if I was only lucky up until that point. I had a line. <laughs> and so, you know, the bigger issue really is. I mean, COVID is an issue and the restrictions are an issue and we can talk about the closed schools and the impact of that. That's certainly an issue. Uh, But my bigger concern and my bigger issue, which is something Barry writes and speaks constantly about so eloquently and why I thought it was the right place to publish my piece is the liberalism that has really kind of oozed from college campuses into all of our institutions. And for all of the talk of inclusivity, it doesn't include those who might not agree on certain issues. You know, it, it doesn't really include everyone. Um, it doesn't include diversity of political viewpoints um, and all sorts of other things. I, I hesitate to put COVID in a political box. It shouldn't have been. Um, you know, I was talking about the health of the nation's children, um, their educational well-being, their psychosocial development, all of those things that should not be political. Um, and for me, this liberalism, this censorship is so concerning. This is not about Levi's. This is about the broader issue in our culture where we can't talk to each other and we can't disagree with each other. And if we can't normalize dissent in this way and we can't have these difficult conversations it's not really a democracy anymore. And even bigger than that, I would say we aren't really in search of any sort of truth because unless you debate serious issues of the day, you will never get to truth. You'll just accept government-issued talking points as the truth. And I would like to know how that makes us any better than an authoritarian regime. I don't think it does. Wow. Okay. That's, we can, I will definitely. Sorry, like I got a lot in there. No, that's, that's perfect because I, I had a whole bunch of stuff on COVID, but your point is, is, is market is that it's not just about the COVID. And to be clear with the listeners, you didn't say anything outlandish. You basically said, I think that it's a bad idea for schools to be closed specific to the deleterious nature of mental health, children that are getting food. It wasn't like you went crazy, well, right? No, now we say that, you know, a year, year and a half in hindsight that there was nothing crazy, but this was considered crazy. This was considered outlandish. And I started in the beginning. So, you know, it was March 2020 when I questioned it because the data was all there already. Everything we know now to be true about the age stratification of risk was very, very clear from the beginning. Now you could say we didn't have enough data. Okay, fine. So maybe spring, it made sense, maybe to keep the schools closed. Although I would argue Denmark, after only three weeks of closed schools, opened them again, saying the harms to children were too great. And due to the age stratification, Mm -hmm. they knew that they could do this safely. Um, 
And so now I lost my train of thought. You know, it, 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 it's, it sounds not very outlandish now, but I right. did start in March. Now, to me, because I was reading the actual studies and the actual data, it seemed not outlandish to me at the time. It seemed so obvious. And I thought, oh, I can convince people. <laughs> See how naive <laughs> I was. Um, <clears throat> if I just use facts and data and, you know, I make it all make sense. I can have influence in the school district of San Francisco, perhaps in California, you know, more broadly. Um, but there was no convincing anyone. And this was considered you know, heresy. It was yeah. demonic. I was this like evil, horrible person who wanted black children to die. That's where the racism, the claim of racism comes from because, you know, children of, of color are more likely to be in urban public schools than in mm -hmm. the private schools, for instance. So that was me not caring about black children and brown children, which is not true. We know now that the learning impacts have more adversely infected, uh, impacted um, children of lesser means, um, black children, et cetera. These are the children more likely to be in urban public schools that were closed the longest. Yeah, and I think that the compare and contrast piece also was very uh, predominant specific to the private schools because the private schools opened up. And so that That's was right. one of those things that proved your belabored point was like, hey, these kids are fine. And I, I live here and work in San Francisco as well. So I, okay. and I have two children in public school at the time they were in third and first grade. So I felt your pain. We understood Where did that. they go? What schools? They, they go in? to Star King Elementary. It's a public sure. school, I but it's it. a Mandarin immersion school. Yeah. And so fortunately for my kids, you know, I stayed home. My, my wife and I work from home. And so it was one of those things where we got to have plenty of time with them. We had tutors, you know, we, it was just fortunate for them that well, their parents were you in. Had, right. You had tutors, you had a parent that could tend to them and help right. them still right. possibly not optimal because they're not getting no. the interaction no. at that age. The interaction is so important, but, um, and that was true for my children as well. And, and my kindergarten, he was a kindergartner in fall um, of 2020 is in Alvarado, which he never saw the inside of, which is a Spanish um, immersion public school in the mission. Um, but I still saw the impacts on him, even though, you know, I was working full time, but my husband is the stay at home parent. He could take him out. They could do as much right. as you could do because playgrounds were all closed, right. as you they know. Actually, padlocked play, padlocked the for playgrounds close, for yeah. close to 10 months. But yeah. For the parents who are working, you know, that can't stay home to monitor their children, to help them, for the folks that don't have strong Wi-Fi, you know, oftentimes there were very young children left home alone. Alone, There were children who rely on the public schools for food. They tried some right. workarounds there. Schools are the place where abuse is identified most often. Yep. We know that reports of abuse went way, way down um, when schools were closed. That's not because the abuse wasn't happening. It's because the reports weren't happening. So there are all sorts of other impacts. And in the fall of 21, as you know, as a San Francisco resident, um, the private schools by and large did open. And so all yep. of my my peers at Levi's, for the most part, had their kids in private schools. And so I thought at that point, well, now they'll see, you know, they're sending their kids back. They're not too afraid to do so. Um, they know the importance of school. They see the impacts on their children. They're grateful and glad. And I heard this directly that their kids had the opportunity to learn in the classroom and interact with their peers. So I thought at that point, 
the rest of the community, you know, both at Levi's and in San Francisco would see the hypocrisy and, mm-hmm. you know, push forward with demanding that schools open. But that's not, in fact, what happened. And the public schools remain closed for a full year more. Well, and then just to put the you know cherry on top of that poop Sunday, our school board decided <laughs> to fight over names of our schools and they want to remove yeah. Lincoln and Washington. And that's actually a great segue into what you're talking about, which I think is far more interesting. Not that your COVID well, discussion wasn't. If I if I could speak to the school board for just a, yes, a moment. So at this point, I was kind of, you know, I was calling into every school board meeting. Um, any parent can, you know, can yes. call in at their Zoom. Um, I was watching and waiting with bated breath for them to talk about when schools were going to open, what they were going to do, how they were going to get them open. And it never happened. Some of these meetings were seven, eight, nine hours long. No, I didn't watch and listen the whole time. That's for a crazy person to do, but I would leave it on and I would walk away and tend to my children and come back. And sometimes maybe for a half hour at the end, they would pay lip service to schools opening, but they were taking no actions to prepare the schools Mm -hmm. to open. I mean, I would argue that no preparation was necessary, open the windows and let the kids come to school, but that's besides the point. They just didn't even focus on it. As you mentioned, what they were focused on was renaming schools, changing admissions policies for Lowell, Mm -hmm. which is a magnet school, high academic achieving magnet school in San Francisco. This is what they talked about or, you know, shaming a parent um, who had been nominated to be part of a sort of parent council as part of the school board. He would have been the only LGBTQ member. He is was a white man and he was shamed for two hours um, that he would not, you know, sort of adequately meet the diversification needs of this school board. This is what they spent their time on. So it seemed they didn't even care um, about getting the schools open. And the irony in my story is the very day, the next day after I resigned quite publicly, the school board, three members who were eligible for recall were recalled by a Mm -hmm. crushing margin, you know, 70, 75 percent, depending on the member. And I know that my peers even voted to recall. And now you can say it was about all kinds of other stuff, but the primary issue, and this is true for all the parents that I know in San Francisco, which are many, was that they failed to get the schools open. So we had kind of moved from, this is this horrible, heretical thing to say to the board did not do their job. And they didn't, you know, they did not do their job in not getting schools open. Um, And suddenly it was okay to say it. But I, I think the The takeaway here, at least from my perspective, is parents weren't willing to say it publicly because they watched what happened to those of us who did. You know, we were vilified. Some of us lost our jobs. They were willing to say it privately at the ballot box. And this is the problem, because if 70 percent of public school parents had stood up and said this is not okay, we might have had a different outcome and we might not have gone you know, a a full year and a half with the schools closed. But they're right to be afraid. It's scary to put yourself out there and you will suffer the consequences. But the irony of that is if we do it and if we say the thing and if we stand together, um, that won't happen because we are the majority and we were the majority. Yeah, and I was with you. I sat on some of those calls. I didn't sit quite as fun, right? (laughs) Yeah, you'd get up and, you know, go cook dinner and, you know... Give your kids a bath. But yeah, it took exactly. a long time because you're like, well, when are you guys going to get to this? When are we going right. to open? It was, and I remember my wife was very on those. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I it... would ask questions in the chat that never got answered. You know, right. I, you could you could put questions in. And so I would ask, you know, when are we going to get to 
talking about school openings, what's the plan to open schools? And they kept pushing it back. You know, there was a time when they said maybe in the fall of 20, that didn't happen. Then we all held out hope that it would be the spring of 21. That didn't happen. They like to claim they opened in spring 21, but they opened like six schools for, you know, for a handful of children. They did not open schools right. in the spring of 21. They really did not open until the fall of 21. And California is the state with the most longest closures. Most school mm -hmm. days shuttered for the most children. And uh, the impacts are clear. And now they won't release the testing scores, you know, the, they won't release the data that illustrates the educational impacts. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, for obvious reasons. I've seen macro data on that that say people lost an entire year. That's right. So it, it, there, it, it's not good. And, and I, yeah, I just need to admit, go ahead. Oh, we haven't seen down to the, you know, sort of very specific state level. We've seen the education report card, which is the, you know, the national report card that's released. I don't even know what the cadence is. And it's, it's not good. We've also that's seen that. The ACT scores are the lowest in 30 years. And now there are those dismissing testing as an imperfect process. Fine, it's an imperfect process. It's the process we have. And clearly, um, there were really damaging impacts. And I think it isn't just the loss learning, which puts kids a year or two years behind. Kids became disengaged with learning. We told them school didn't matter. It wasn't a priority. We signaled strongly to them that they weren't a priority. And so now absenteeism is at an all-time high. 40% uh, of students in major cities like Los Angeles and New York are chronically absent. That means absent more than 10% of the time. But when you send the signal that school doesn't matter, kids can't just turn it back on and go, this is important. We just told them it wasn't. We just told them it wasn't. That's a really good point. Yeah, no, the whole, it was a debacle of epic proportion. And I think that that actually does lean into what you mentioned start out with. I think that this is a really cool discussion around ideology in the sense that, you know, there, I don't know if you read the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Of course. I'm sure yeah. you have. So I belong to Jonathan Haidt's Heterodox Academy. And so I sit in a lot of these symposiums. And did you go to the one here in Denver recently? I did yeah. not, sadly. Okay. I, it was. I, I don't go to them. I actually just okay. log in kind of thing. Okay. I eventually want to go more. Oh, yeah. I thought it was fantastic. So yeah, we could talk forever about that. Uh, Greg Lakanioff and Dr. Jonathan Haidt wrote this. And Greg Lakanioff is the president of FIRE, which stands for the Foundation Against Racism and Intolerism, and Intolerance. And he has, and then Dr. Jonathan Haidt is a professor at NYU School of Business. And part of their thesis in the book was that in 2013, based on a whole bunch of different machinations, the iPhone, social media, access to social media with these brand new phones, is that we have raised children differently, just to be brief. And that when they got into schools, we started things like safe space, specifically in elite universities. And he was very clear on this in his book that, you know, out of the thousands of universities, it was more akin to you know, your alma mater, Stanford, Harvard, Cornell, Yale, blah, blah. And so what he was talking about was that there was, you know, historically his safe spaces were things like, let's just say a marginalized community, black, gay, trans possibly, where they need a space to go and talk with like kind people because they're having a hard time acclimating. And I, and I, I, I see some, some benefit there. What took place was that the safe spaces were also used for ideological and emotional harm. So that if someone was preaching 
a GOP mantra and a red hat in the public square of the university, then these people are wounded. And I remember Brown, which they actually talked about specifically, had cookies and milk and pillows and soft music and counselors to talk you through this level of trauma. When for me, I interviewed two professors on this topic early this year, one from USF, one from Berkeley. And the Berkeley professor was quick to say, yeah, I think safe spaces are great. You know, he was a former professor. I think they're great. And uh, I was like, wow, okay, that was quick. And do you think then, because to me, safe spaces are great if you're eight to 12, but if you're 18 to 22, you're an adult. So grow up and deal with some pain and go after some confrontation because that's what universities are historically about, specifically Berkeley, by the way, which was, you know, the home of free speech in 1964. And so like, it was one of those things where as I read this book, I was growing in my frustration with this ideology. And then it, I asked the same professor, if you agree that it's necessary in college, do you then think it needs to transfer to the corporate landscape? And his immediate answer was also yes. And that's kind yeah, of what you mentioned, right? Yeah, so, I mean, it certainly has. I mean, these kids, you know, these young people graduate and they move into corporate America and they bring those same kind of mores with them. And it's sort of premised upon this idea that speech is violence and that some speech is right. just too dangerous and too harmful to be allowed. Um, but for me, one, I, I reject that and I think it's false. And I don't actually believe any of us are that fragile, that we can't hear speech we either. disagree with. I think it's a pose. Um, but we have raised children. And I, I, you know, I agree with um, with both Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff that it sort of accelerated in 2013. But as a parent of um, older children. I have a 22 and a 19 year old. I certainly started to see this long before that okay. in this sort of safetyism. And he talks about this in the book as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have my own theories about, about, you know, why parents of my generation, I'm Gen X, have wanted to raise their kids this way in this incredibly coddled and um, unrealistically safe world um, with kind of padded floors at playgrounds and, you know, intervening in every skirmish at the playground. I always mm -hmm. like to hang back and let the kids sort of sort it out themselves. Even if, you know, if my kid was wrong, if the other kid was wrong, whatever, they're kids, like everybody's right. wrong. Sometimes it's not a big deal. They need to learn to sort these disagreements. You know, the other example that people use all the time is that everybody gets a medal, everybody gets a ribbon at every sporting event. You know, I think it's important to learn to lose. It's also important to learn what you're not very good at. You know, if that's the lesson, <laughs> that's okay too. Yeah. Or that you got to dust yourself off and keep trying. And, you know, I was raised in a sport that was too harsh, you know, in terms of the, the environment. I'm not advocating for that. I think there's a line between, I think it's a clear, bright line between abuse um, which is what kind of went on in my sport of gymnastics and tough coaching. There is a line. Um, and sometimes having expectations of our kids and letting them fail sometimes and, you know, letting them dust themselves off. That's what teaches resilience. Um, now I hesitate to use the word resilient for reasons I'm sure you understand, because this is what was shouted at children um, being locked out of schools, you know, I think that we can teach our kids to be resilient without abusing them. And I think keeping them out of schools for a year and a half is was abusive, um, especially for kids that don't have resources and can't have tutors and pods and don't have strong Wi-Fi. This is denying them opportunity. Um, so I do think I, 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 I do think that 
there's been this coddling and every sort of insult or slight or just look askance is now taken to be this grave injustice. Um, and it's taken to there, there's a pose I would I would suggest it's it's not even real and that it's an adopted pose that you know I am wounded. I'm so damaged by these words I disagree with that they are in fact violence. Now the other issue and the problem with this is if you claim these words are violence, then violence in response is now justified. And right. I find that incredibly problematic uh, for obvious reasons as well. Words are words. We can hear them. We can disagree with them. We can debate. Um, but ultimately, if there are some words that are too dangerous to be spoken, we cease to have any sort of debate, debate on matters of critical importance and concern. And that is very, very concerning. I couldn't agree more. I, I've actually said this numerous times to anyone that specifically my progressive friends that argue that speech is violence. I said, you know, the word water does not make you wet. And so it's one of those <laughs> things where we're not going to have this discussion. And so it's, I'm not saying that worms can't harm you, specifically your emotional well-being. It's that there's a difference between speech being violent and someone stabbing you in the neck when you're Salman Rushdie standing up on a stage right? That's violence. And so let's just be clear with our words. And that actually lends to what you were talking about specific to the ideology. Because these kids at the 2013 level, this is based on the thesis of Lakanioff and Haidt, is that they have now come from the academy and those ideas have leached into NGOs and nonprofits in the corporate sector and law and medicine. And you're yeah. seeing this with gender ideology and trans yeah. ideology and everything is harm. And if you say this, you erase me and you do this and you harm. So these words, I'm not saying that you can't be cruel with language because that's obvious. You can. But yes, the idea there to protect anyone from that, specifically on college campuses and what they reference, which I thought to your reference, um, is that if you believe speech is violence, then you can respond in real violence, in physical violence which took place on the campus because of Milo Yiannopoulos, who, by the way, I think is a complete jackass. It's not he that is. I don't think he should, number one, don't invite him, but, right? If that's the issue, but, but you can't de-platform him once you got him there. But if he's ridiculous, which he is, he's a clown. No one's heard from him in years because he doesn't <laughs> say anything of any value. No, Bad doesn't. ideas sink like stones. Don't censor them. No. Bad ideas will ask sink. them questions. <laughs> he, they they won't be able to answer. He right. never had anything of real sort of merit or, you know, substance to say. And so now he's gone. You didn't yeah. need to censor him. You didn't no. need to silence him. And so I'm sort of an absolutist here. Let the guy talk. And we're not so sensitive. We can't hear his stupid words. And they will go. He will go away because he doesn't really have anything of 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 any value to offer. Um, and I think, you know declaring that some speech is just too dangerous to be heard you're then you you don't believe in free speech then <laughs> because right. speech that was considered too dangerous yesterday is considered okay today um and so you know i just i think I, i'm i'm an absolutist here and i you know to go back to the the point about schools as you said none of this seems controversial now, now. two years in in hindsight yeah. and so you know i would just say if we, if those of us who were willing to kind of stand up and speak out about it, and it's not just moms like me, it's not just sort of regular people. There are doctors with, you know, careers from illustrious institutions, places like Harvard and Stanford, um, really well-respected 
um, doctors, leaders in their field, statisticians that were shunted off to the side and called quacks. And so there was this sort of false consensus created because anyone who challenged was deemed a quack or a fringe epidemiologist or a fringe that. Um, they were nothing of the sort. And so I would just say if that that conversation was allowed to happen as it pertains to kids and COVID in schools, we might have gotten to a very different answer much sooner and caused far less harm to children. But that conversation wasn't even allowed to happen. And now we seem to have skipped a step and we seem to be in this place where it's sort of widely accepted that it was problematic. It was a mistake. Even Fauci is saying, well, of course there were deleterious consequences. Everybody should have known that. Well, if you said it, you were vilified. Correct. Sometimes maybe your job was at risk, you know? So we skipped this step where now it's accepted because the evidence is clear, but there's no accountability. No one's owning the the decision. This is a decision. This is a policy decision that was made by local government leaders, influenced by school boards by and large, and um, and teachers unions, um, and you know, depending on the market and the district, um, you know, public health leaders who are appointed, public health officials who are appointed, who influence the the political decision making, and so. I, I use this as an example just to say this is the danger of not having the conversation is you don't mm -hmm. ever get to the right answer and you never get to the truth. And this is true across a range of issues, not just um, schools and kids and COVID. Um, but I ran into it with that. I ran into, um, you know, my dissenting came in that yeah. area during during COVID. But it's a much larger issue and it's not just about the company I worked in. Um, it's about institutions across the country not allowing for open debate and dissent. And so I keep talking about it because I want to normalize dissent. This has to be, we have to, the only thing that protects speech, yours, mine, is more speech. That's the only thing. And That's so true. some of us just have to be the ones that do it. And then that inspires others to do the same, hopefully. Yes. I mean, Ira Saul Glasser, who was the executive director of ACLU for 20 years said, you know, you can't say free speech, but right. <laughs> I believe in free speech, it's but there's no, but there's just, and I'm an absolutist with you on that front too, because it's for me as abhorrent as a lot of speech is specific to your know, Nazis as an example, or just hate speech in general, people that are just mean and want to hurt your feelings because they're miserable on their own. It's, it is pushing back. And part of debate, which I find so fascinating, specifically, even in my role, reporting on these subjects is that when I don't understand something, the best way to finally understand or even hone my own agree argument is to talk with people who dissent. What do yeah. you think? Oh, well, I think yeah. you're nuts. And here's why. I'm like, well, that's a really good point. I didn't even think of yeah. that. And or that's batshit. That's nuts, dude. You're not even talking. You know, so it's like that, that level of, I think, discourse is necessary for us and but so most aren't take... willing to do that. I mean, many people don't even have friends that disagree. It's like considered too outside the bounds of morality to have a friend who well, is a Republican, for instance, or or you know, or or something like that. But to your point, I always learn something. I always develop more empathy. You know, yeah. I'm pro-choice. I have been pro-choice my my entire life. I have many friends who are pro-life, and I understand the view. It doesn't change my opinion, but I have empathy right. and I understand the view. And 
I think it's false to assert that they don't care about women. That's not the view. The view is that they believe that this this thing is, you know, this fetus is a person from yeah. inception. That's what yeah. they believe. Do I have to share that view? No. Can I understand that view? Sure. Does it give me empathy? And um, are we able to engage in a sort of a, a, a better, higher quality debate if I can understand it? But most many um, won't even talk with people they disagree with anymore. And in fact, you know, as you pointed out, when I went on on Fox, that was really, I mean, there was already pushback before that, but that was like the real beginning of the end for me because I spoke with the enemy. I spoke right. with someone uh, that I probably disagree with on a whole host of things that I didn't happen to disagree with on this particular issue. Right. And it's part of my point, and it's why I will go on shows hosted by people that I don't agree with because we have to talk to each other even when we don't agree. <laughs> I, to I We couldn't agree more at 230. Our tagline is understanding without agreement. That's our goal. Right with everything we're doing. And I think that, you know, if you look at abortion as one example, which is obviously front and center today, specific to the upcoming elections, it, it's always been one of those things for me that was framed around a clash of absolutes. So for us, I'm a pro-choice as well. But on that front, you know, it's it's the difference between where where does a zygote become a fetus on that side? And then for us is the the, the autonomy and privacy of an adult human female. Those are the arguments. And so, That's like, good. for me, I grew up in a Catholic family. My mother is very Catholic. She uses words like murder right. when it comes to abortion. She always has. And so do yeah. all her friends. And I went home this summer to see my mommy, and I call them the Golden Girls because they all hang out and, you know, walk together and have lunch together. And they're sweet 80-year-old women. But they call them, they make fun of me because I'm liberal. Oh, there's that San Francisco liberal. And I'm like, how are you guys? Good to see you. And when they talk about what do you think of the abortion stuff? And I'm like, well, you know me, I, I don't, I don't get into politics. So you guys, let me cook you some grilled cheese. But <laughs> the idea there is that you shouldn't hate people based on that. I took a camera crew to a daily wire event recently. And that interviewed people on this exact subject on trans ideology and abortion. And, you know, our editorial boards had fun with it. We're looking at the spots and we're, we, it, we're going to take a load of shit when we when we launch this video. And I know we're going to, but I'm doing it on purpose because I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I'm actually saying the same thing you're saying. I don't dis, I don't agree with these folks. But the conversations that I had on and off camera were unbelievably funny. I mean, to the point where I was talking with a guy with a, you know, let's go Brandon t-shirt and a guy with a red hat and, you know, the, where are you from? And I said, I'm from San Francisco. Oh, we'll still love you anyway. You know, and I'm like, good, that's great. And then what do you guys think of this? And why are you guys here to see Ben? I mean, who's your favorite host? And, you know, those kind of questions. Did you vote in the last election? Yes. Are you going to vote for the same person if he runs again? Oh, you're goddamn right. You know, and it was just, it was wonderful. And we had backslapping hugs and jokes and not one true toxic conversation. And part of my thesis with this video to put it out there to the audience is that I genuinely believe what you went through, specific to the Twitter mob, is horrible and it hurts because I get a call all the time. I've been reporting on gender dysphoria for about four or five months and I get just terrible notes about how they're going to, you know, I should kill you and you're a terrible person and you're a racist and you're a transphobe. And I'm actually a trans activist. So that's the irony of the whole thing. Irony. It's like, 
I'm just trying to, you know, I interview trans folks and I interview doctors about puberty blockers and those kind of things. And so these are very contentious topics. But the, the issue is that most people online, because it's autonomous, because you're, you're not your person, is yeah. you're just, they're more mean spirited and they're more. Yeah, that's cool. a great, it's a good point. And I think that was one of the, I think it was by design personally, but I think that was one of the very harmful aspects of, of lockdowns um, was to I keep agree. us all point. apart in that way. We could not come together. We could not have, you know, respectful conversations. It's very yeah. easy for everybody to kind of descend into disrespect and, you know, dehumanizing other folks when you're not sitting across the table and having a conversation, it's much easier um, to have empathy and to listen and to try to understand and to respectfully disagree when you're in person. But when you're hiding behind anonymity, which I never do and never have, I've always felt it was important to own my words and to stand yeah. by my words and to speak as if I'm talking to you. Yeah. Um, I've never said anything in social media or, you know, in a TV interview that I wouldn't say sitting across the kitchen table from somebody that I either agree or disagree with. Um, I've always tried to be very diplomatic. I've always tried to be fact-based. Um, and so it's not like I was out there ranting about, you know, I wasn't saying these terribly horrible racist things. I was citing data and <laughs> quoting magazine articles and newspaper articles and respected doctors. Um, but it didn't matter. It 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 just didn't matter in the end. And then I think, you know, there was the mob from social media. There was also the mob internally in the company. And I think that gets to what you're saying about, you know, campuses and, you know, then folks coming into uh, companies and other institutions across the country. And they've sort of been trained um, in this in this way that says, if I feel insulted or if somebody says something I disagree with, that's causing me grave harm. That's a social injustice and they need to go and they feel very righteous in doing this. You right. know, um, they feel they have the moral high ground in demanding um, that you be ousted and silenced. And I would just say, watch out, you know, they're going to well, come next. for you one day, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, it, and so I said it repeatedly in the company, you know, I was challenged. I was asked to do an apology tour. Believe it or not, I did not apologize. I explained myself. Um, I, and this is for I, HR? Yeah, I support your right to say a thing, even right. if I disagree with you. Um, certainly after work, you know, right. <laughs> your your right. politics are your own. Right. Treat people here with respect. Um, you know, you can't go around calling people names that's a that's no. certainly an hr violation but i i don't think it should be it can't be an hr violation you can't be risking your job if you hold an opinion um that is different and somewhat out of step with the ideology of the company which why does a company even have a political ideology you know let's ask that for a second are you really creating an inclusive environment um if that is the case well, I mean, I think you've probably read about this because you're obviously a scholar, but you know, you look at Brian Armstrong from Coinbase, where he came out and basically said to his staff, and I'm paraphrasing, but some of the effect that we're on Slack, we're no longer talking politics, period. It's not allowed, and you'll be removed from the company if that. And by the way, if you don't like the fact that we're not going to talk politics here at work, I'll give you a very generous severance package and you can leave. And 5% of the company left. And a year after that experiment was 
measurable. The productivity was staggering. And it was one of those things where he, same thing, he was actually, you know, brought out and flogged and tarred and feathered just like you were. Well, they were saying half the company was going to leave. I've yes. read numbers that were yes. so high. It's yes. interesting. I don't I don't think I knew it was 5%. But, you know, I would cite another example um, with Netflix. Correct. Uh, you know, employees were screaming and yelling and, 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 you know, very angry. They wanted Dave Chappelle's show, The Closer, to be taken off, off yep. the platform. It was said to be anti-trans. I'm not even going to get into the content of the show. No. Um there was supposed to be this, you know, protest outside of the company. There were going to be thousands there. I think there were thousands. Yes. <laughs> I think there were like 27. Uh, yeah, that's what um, there weren't many. <laughs> and the CEO said in a, you know, written memo to the company, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember precisely, but, you know, we show content with lots of different views and perspectives. We have lots of different viewers and they want to see different things. And if that's not okay with you, then this probably isn't the place for you to work. Done yeah. and done. And as far as I know, there has not been a mass exodus. It's no, fine. it wasn't. Um, and, you know, for him, look, this is a business decision. This is one of, it was one of the, you know, most viewed shows on the platform last year. He's not taking it off. He paid a lot of money to get this oh, guy no. on the platform. People want to see it. Um, words are not violence. And so, no. you know, there's a, there's a wide range of programming available. He could have cowed to the mob screaming for his head, meaning Sarandos, the CEO and, and Chappelle's. And he said, no. And it, it just seems to me, it didn't take that much to just quell the mob. It's no one's no. heard about it since it's done. No. He just said, we're not doing this. And you know, the Spotify guy did the same thing. I can't remember his name. Joe Eck. Rogan. With Rogan, Eck is, yeah. the, is the CEO. Oh, right. yeah. You know, everybody's calling for Rogan's head. They wanted to kick off, kick him off the platform. He said, no, you know, that's not the path forward here of silencing is not the path platform for lots of different people. Have you heard about it? So no, it's fine. Right. Yes. Have, well, have employees left have, have all the artists no. <laughs> other than Neil Young and who else? There's like two others. Who else has pulled their music? No one. Well, they it's came a back. Business decision. That was another funny part. So I yeah, know, they it, came back. It, it was it, a business decision. Fine. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, they have held this principle that <laughs> we are inclusive. That means including different viewpoints on the platform and in terms of people who work here. Um, I mean, the fact is, is if you if you silence debate and dissent, it's not just this sort of bigger, more philosophical issue about, you know, I would argue not really upholding the promise of democracy and certainly prohibiting the ability to find truth if you can't debate. But in a business context, and you know this, if you don't encourage people to tell you their ideas, to say, call bullshit on something that's a bad yeah. idea, you're going to, it's bad business. Yeah. You're going to make really bad decisions. And, you know, there are, I could, from my industry, I could count, I could tell you millions of them, maybe not millions, but a lot of them, where you had these guru-led cultures throughout the, the 90s and the the 2000s, all decisions were made at the top by the CEO. Guess what? They stopped making good decisions at one point, but they created this culture that was incredibly um, repressive and employees didn't feel like they could challenge. And so those bad decisions just kept being made. And those businesses, Victoria's Secret, 
Abercrombie, they just right. went down, 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 down. Yeah. Both of those leaders created cultures where you could not challenge. So, you know, this is a more practical kind of area of concern, but it, it applies everywhere. If you cannot talk and discuss and debate, poor decisions will be made and the truth will not be found. And so, you know, that's why I keep talking about it because I do find this to be, it's, it's profoundly <laughs> concerning. Um, and again, you know, it's, this is not, this is not about grievance. I'm not on a grievance tour. I love Levi's <laughs> wearing them now. Um, I tell everybody the best jeans in the world are Levi's Bible ones. I've got a closet full of them. At, you know, I was there 23 years. I probably have a hundred pairs and I will wear them forever, just as I have since I was a young child. Um, I believe they're better than this, that company. And I, I believe you know, they can and will be better again. Do you, I mean, maybe you don't want to speak about Levi specifically, but you mentioned the fact that this has, you know, moved to this, let's just say the coddling of the children in college, then moved to the corporate space. And I have friends still, I, I was in the, in the advertising business for 20 years and we, you know, go on coffee and a lot of my talk off the record because they don't want to be on record um, yeah. with their corporations or the agency they're representing, but they share with me a very similar stories that they they have... You know, when you have a bias hotline, which they had at NYU and they have other universities that have that, if there's a, and Dr. Jonathan Haidt talked about this in a recent interview where he said he used to be a very a provocative professor early on at University of Virginia yeah, and he would give certain things about. and say, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really kind of freak you guys out for the first five minutes and it's going to be kind of weird, but just trust me and we'll get through it. And then... He said they would all come back. But if you're teaching a class of 300 kids and there's an actual hotline that is posted in the hallways and in the bathrooms and on your Forget dorms, They got a phone in their pocket. They can post it to Instagram. They can tweet it right in the moment and they can right destroy there. a career because one person complained. Yeah. Or they can build a coalition. I mean, I'm sure you read recently at NYU, um, a professor of organic chemistry was fired. Um, he literally <laughs> wrote the book on organic chemistry. Yes. He was supposedly a pretty tough teacher, older gentleman. I don't know. I'm not going to comment on his teaching. I do know organic chemistry is the sort of divides the, what's the phrase, the wheat from the, the chaff. The the, <laughs> yep, that's the one. I mean, my dad yeah. has told me the same. He's a pediatrician. That was when he knew he could be a doctor. He did well in organic chem. That's when a lot yeah. of people decide they're not going to be a doctor. So these students came together. They, you know, started a petition and they said that th this is the part that got me. And this is how it was reported in the New York Times. One of the lines in the petition or whatever you want to call it was, our grades do not match the effort we've put in. <laughs> I read that too. Well, no, grades aren't a measure of, of effort. Your effort. Grades are an effort Efficacy. of mastery, but <laughs> yes. it's as if the grades hurt their feelings. So again, yes. back to the sensitivity and yeah. grades are not intended. Look, maybe he did terrible things and he was abusive. I don't know. I've been reading a lot about it. Sounds like he, you know, had some, um, you know, maybe school. outdated ways yes, of yeah. teaching, but grades not matching the effort is not, that is not the point. Your right. grades, just like in business, you know, I had this conversation with employees all the time, as I'm sure, you know, you always had employees that came to you and said, but I'm trying really hard. I get that. Yeah. And I appreciate you gotta that. deliver the results. <laughs> right. Businesses don't succeed. They don't stay in business if you don't deliver the results. Now right. I would ask that you do that in the right way that you do it 
while treating your colleagues with respect, while treating consumers with respect, you know, offering the best possible product you can at the fair price, not saying cheat anyone. I'm not saying deliver results by any means necessary, but you got to deliver results. Effort is not... Effort is not the thing that gets rewarded, but that's how we've trained our kids. That's what happens when everyone gets a medal. Everyone gets a medal is we reward effort, which is maybe fine at five or six. I don't think it is fine at 10. I I dropped it at eight because I coached you soccer and baseball and basketball. And I told my little boys that. I'm like, you guys aren't getting getting a a trophy unless you win. And this was at eight. And they, they won. And so they loved it even more, I think. My younger children are are eight and five. She's about to turn six. And here in Denver, they already don't don't do that. You know, you get the medal if you win. They all feel, I mean, they're all encouraged. They're all, the coaches are amazing. But there is value in learning how to lose. If you win all the time, what's the, that's not, it's just like, well, that's not winning. <laughs> and right. then you just expect to be promoted, to be rewarded, to, to be everything all the time. And, um, you know, to go back to the the point about the classroom, you know, they don't even have to call the hotline. Like I said, they know they have the power in their pocket yeah. of a phone. And they believe that if they are in the slightest bit offended, and this is not all of them. I just want to be really clear. I had no. some of the most amazing young people that worked for me and in on my team and just hardworking, smart. So I, I don't want to malign an entire generation. Um, but there is a subset that believes if they are offended in the slightest, and it can be anything, that that person deserves what what they get and they will do anything. So, you know, and they know that with the the, the power of a finger tap, you know, post it to whatever social media platform, yeah. they can in fact get that person fired and they believe that it's justified. And I think that the leaders of these institutions, whether it's a university or whether it's a corporation, need to push back on this. But they're they're sort of afraid of young yeah. people and they want their approval. These are their children, after all. Right. I mean, that sort of not literally, but like this cohort is their children. They want to be liked because we also live in an era of I'm your friend, not your dad. <laughs> yeah, no, that you're right. And I think that that university piece then graduates. So, so my brother, as I mentioned earlier, was an adjunct professor and I won't name the university, the law school, but he got in trouble for doing the same thing. He was flunking people and he was teaching legal oh, reasoning and writing. And his school was suffering from bad bar results. And your school's accreditation is actually in right. part measured by your pass rate Who passes, for the California yeah. bar. And so he was like, I don't understand the incongruency of this discipline. Right? You guys are in trouble. I'm a writer. You know, He has a master's degree in rhetoric and writing composition and a law degree. And he graduated top of his class. Blah, blah, blah. And he was a good professor. He got tons and tons of great reviews from his students, but he was tough. And he told him, I'm going to be tough. And the reason it'll be tough is because you're going to be a lawyer. And if you're a lawyer, you have life and death situations in your hands. You have children well, in your hands. A doctor. Right? Doctor, same thing. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's why I mentioned it. Because it's like, yeah. this is organic chemistry. That is the litmus test, right? <laughs> My sister-in-law is a doctor. And so she mentioned that same thing because I was just outraged by this article. And it's it then, again, goes back to the corporate piece. You talked, and I don't know if you want to get into this, but you talked, a bit about the DEI programs within corporate America now. And I yeah, think that I'm a lot of to it. talk about it. Yeah, I'm yeah. happy to talk about it. And I know 
you know, and I, I will say I was very much a part of the employee resource groups, which there's kind of a subset of, you know, uh, the DEI programs in our company. I was the executive sponsor from the outset. I believe the year was 2017 when we started it of the, the Black Employee Resource Group. I was asked by employees in my group who I was close to, I would have called them friends. We had talked about many of these issues and they asked me, you know, every group needed an executive sponsor. I was very committed and, and passionate. And, and I've been challenged and asked, you know, do I not see the error of my ways in this regard? And I would push back and say, no, I still support it. Anyone could join any ERG. It wasn't, you know, the, the Black ERG was not just for Black employees. Anyone could join if they wanted to. Um, so they weren't sort of exclusionary in that way. Can you explain to the listeners what ERG is, please? It's an employee resource group. And so our goal, we had about 10 at the company, and they're all the rage within HR and companies <laughs> yeah. these days. Um, but the idea is, and, and here's why I would defend them. And I know a lot of people will not like me for this, and that's fine. Um, I don't really fit neatly into a box on the right or the left. And, I'm gathering. You know, my, my, <laughs> new, my new fans on the right don't like this view that I have. But here's... Let, let me go back a second. So I started out in corporate America in the mid-90s. Let's call it 1994. My first sort of corporate job at an agency. Um, as I moved from the agency side to the sort of client side, as we call it, and then ultimately landed at Levi's in 1999, there were almost no female leaders. And the female leaders that were in the company were like the soft functions, the support functions, HR and corpcom. There were no women, you know, owning PLs and running businesses in the company until very recently. I mean, I was the first female brand president. Um, and so there was like this network we had, you know, I didn't have a lot of role models in the company for women who had kind of made it through. And look, I could bore you with the, you know, sexism that we all endured as we came up in companies. It, it's It's boring. And I don't say it to to be a whiner, but just to say we've come a long way yes. and things are much better. There are behaviors that many young women put up with at my company in the early 2000s that they don't have to anymore. And Correct. that's great. And that's that because good. they spoke up and they said not anymore. Well, in this environment where there were very few female leaders, like I said, we had a network. So we had this informal group of women. I, you know, I remember in 2006 being passed over for a job and a, a female executive reached out to me who I didn't even know. And she knew that I'd been passed over and she, she thought it wasn't right. And she knew that I must've been upset and she encouraged me. She just offered encouragement and she became a mentor of sorts. So for me, what ERGs did was they formalized this kind of support for groups that maybe weren't as present in leadership at the company. Yeah. Um, and so we chose, and you know, when, when, when we formed this Black Employee Resource Group, it wasn't even sort of a formal process at the company. Now there is a formal process, but we did it kind of on our own. And it was just a way for Black employees to find community, to support each other. As the sponsor, I felt it was my responsibility to provide visibility to those employees, especially those who are really, you know, killing it and doing a great job, who maybe in the past wouldn't have had opportunities. Um, that's it. You know, it, it, the black employees are a relatively small percentage of the company at corporate. I'm not going to remember the name, the, the number right now, but it's much less than the, than the national average. And so 
you just bring people together to create community and provide support for each other. Mm-hmm. I don't have an issue with that. I know what the arguments against it are. Um, and like I said, I was the sponsor for five years uh, and I took that that job seriously. And I, I think I... Um, I think I did a did a good job, and I, I very much feel like we created a sense of real community and and gave employees visibility that they and mentorship that they might not otherwise have had. So I support it. Good, the right yeah, just to, me for it. <laughs> no, I, I, my listeners, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it is a. I don't process all aspects of those programs, though. So I, I want to be clear that, well, that yeah, that's that's. Thing kind of where I, I wanted to get into that in the sense that it is a also a huge discussion specific to critical race theory because they that was an academic exercise in the 70s by Kimberly Crenshaw and Richard Delgado. <clears throat> and if you look at those intellectuals talking about critical race theory, it was kind of talking to how our origins were wrapped in oppression and racism, which is totally accurate. And then how the race, black people specifically, because there's different pieces with intersectionality, but the original thesis was blacks and how they were uh, subjected to this and how it's actually harmed their collective well-being, which I agree with 100%. The idea around diversity, equity, and inclusion from what we see on, you know, again, this is one of those topics that is so complex that there's good and bad in both. And I think that with, and that's why I was wondering what you thought around that. Is are not just Levi's, but do you see what do you see that's good about the diversity, equity, inclusion programs, and what do you see that you may think be going too far in the yeah, ideology think, side of it? So, I think. I mean, I'll speak specifically about the Levi's brand, which is a broad reach. Everyone wears Levi's. Yeah. You know, you'd be hard pressed to find a person that doesn't have a pair in their closet. Maybe they don't wear them now, but everybody has a pair of Levi's. So everyone, minivan moms and cowboys and, you know, urban hipsters. kids on skateboards <laughs> yeah. and hipsters and yeah. hip hop artists and everyone in between. So there's not a blue red divide for this brand. Yeah. Everybody wears Levi's and that's kind of a lovely thing. Um, and this is true across the world. Levi's yeah. sells in over 110 countries. And so my belief not only is it the right thing to provide opportunity to everyone, as long as you can do the job, um, but that the business will be better and stronger if there are a range of perspectives represented. Mm-hmm. And so if I take the the very charged, you know, issue of race in America out of it for a second, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll make a more international argument. Yes. <laughs> for many, many years, companies like Levi's, American companies, but other, other, other American companies, they ran their businesses outside of the U.S. and they just put a bunch of white guys basically in charge <laughs> of running the business in. <clears throat> a lot still do, frankly, you know, running yeah. the business in Japan or India or or wherever, Western, you know, white men, not just American men, but English, uh, you know, UK, Australia, there's a lot of um, kind of of that that happens, particularly in in the Asian markets. Our business, I'll use India as an example, got really good in the, in, 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 our business got really, really strong in India when we had folks leading it, that understood that market, that had grown up there, that knew the culture, Mm -hmm. that understood it. So when we stopped putting, you know, 
the white guy from Chicago over it because he had worked wherever and knew how to run a business. And we found people that knew how to run a business and understood the culture in that country in a way that, frankly, I probably could never understand not having grown up there. The business was more successful. That is also diversification. And it's smart. It's good business sense. You know, when we I'll give you another example. I'll take gender. You know, Levi's always struggled with um, women's jeans in the women's category. And for many, many years, you know, in the, in the, in the denim category, men's outsold women's like beyond Levi's just by like 75, 25. But then by about 2000, it got equal. Women started wearing jeans a lot more. We could not get it right for the life of us. We kept doing it wrong. We couldn't get that business right. We were getting left in the dust. I'm not saying only women can run a women's business, but when we had a woman designing the product that understood in her soul what women wanted <laughs> to feel like when they put yeah. on a pair of jeans, and then I was leading the marketing, and I understood in my soul how she wanted to feel, and I could communicate that with the content, that's when that business took off. So okay. I just think, you know, Diversification also serves the business of representing a broad range of consumers because the fact is, is one view, you're not going to be able to adequately do that. You're just not going to be able to. So there's real value in it for the business and it's the right thing to do. Um, Where it goes overboard. Well, first of all, I think it goes overboard when we talk about inclusivity, but we don't we don't include viewpoint inclusivity. We don't yeah. include, um, you can't, you know, politically disagree. Then it, it definitely goes overboard. But I also think some of these trainings, and I have been in many um, anti-racism or whatever you want to call it, trainings. I was in one, in fact, with um, the white uh, fragility. Robin D'Angelo? I was went, one with wow. her. Okay. Yeah. We had her. You can read about it in the New York Times. I've um, I've actually done interviews about her with DEI consultants, just so you know. I've studied her. So I, I will refrain from my viewpoint I, on her, but you go well, ahead. I won't. Um, so I, I was in one with her in person, you know, that was before COVID, and then several, I think, during during COVID that were virtual, not with her. Um, okay. I think where it becomes really problematic is it actually, it flattens people into groups, which is exactly what we're trying to overcome um, when we want to sort of banish bigotry and racism. But suddenly you're flattened and you are a white woman and therefore you think this. You are a white man and therefore you think this and you've had the mic for so long so you can't actually talk anymore. Um, And you have, you know, people are ranked on their, their privilege um, I don't know your story. I don't know your background. I want to hear what you have to say. Like that, we, it just seems to me that we are all getting sort of reflattened into these groups and that it goes overboard when it sort of furthers that kind of, I'll call it bigotry, you know. Um, that's when it becomes problematic in my mind. And when you are forced to sort of prostrate yourself and apologize for things you've never done. I mean, I'll speak specifically one that we did as an executive team towards the end of my time was led by a white guy, which was ironic. Um, And towards the end, there was um, some chit chat. This was sort of not part of the 
course. And he said, do you, you know, the whole thing was about sort of disavowing your white privilege. And yeah. I'm not really sure what good that does. I want to talk about actionable strategies to ensure that we were include were an inclusive organization. Yeah. That seems to me a more practical matter that would do more more good than me kind of, you know, apologizing and taking a, a bend with me. But he said, he said, he asked us at the end, do you, do you want to know what the biggest problem is in this sort of whole fight we're waging? What group is the biggest problem? And he said, it's white women. And I was like, huh? and that's like, you know, 40% of the people in the meeting. And I was like, oh God, I want to hear this. Yeah. And he do said, hell. White women, you know, because white men have so much privilege and power, they're willing to share more of it. White women who have only just kind of come in to some degree of power um, in the public sphere are not willing to give any up. So they won't acknowledge they even have privilege. And I was like, are we? He said that out loud. (laughs) He said it out loud. And then he said the second biggest group was low income white people. They won't they won't disavow their privilege. And that's when I, in my mind, said, I don't think they feel like they have any. I think that if you live in a community that's been decimated, I mean, mm-hmm. I went to high school in, a, in Allentown, Pennsylvania in the 1980s. This is a community that was, you know, decimated because two businesses, Mack Trucks and Bethlehem Steel, did not exist anymore. And so, right. you know, the unemployment, um, it was, you know, it just ripped through the the community. I don't think these people feel that they have any privilege to disavow. And it's disrespectful of their experience <laughs> to force them, force them to. Um, but their their perspective doesn't matter. And that's how we get Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Robin DeAngelo because I I started out this interviewing black academics because I want to understand critical race theory from their purview. And it taught me a lot. And then I interviewed a DEI consultant who wrote a book called Letters to My White Male Friends. And he is a DEI consultant, lawyer, and and thinker, and just a wonderful man. And we talked on camera about this. And I brought up Robin DiAngelo because I'd done some homework on her, and I'd pulled some records. I had some buddies of mine that were kind enough to share some of her slides. And, you know, one of her slides was, how do you be less white? And I was like, that's a slide. And then we looked through it and it said things like, well, you need to be less arrogant, less confident. And you're like, wow. And so just that level of division blew me away. To your point, it was leveling people to an actual grid system on intersectionality. So for me, as a white cis male, I have absolutely no... Victim you need voice. to shut up and sit down. And I'm not allowed to talk. That's actually one of those things where, you know, you, you I mean. Mr. Executive, need to sit down. And for me, we did these things when I was uh, running an agency and I brought in consultants to do exactly what you were doing. And if one of them were to come in and said, by the way, every one of you is a racist, because that's how Robin DiAngelo starts her her programs. And if you if you deny that you're a racist, that makes that you a racist. Proves that you're a racist. So you know that's one of those things too, where you're like, you All right. to, there's no, there's no. Well, that's what I realized. Can't that. win. And I, I'd read the book before because I did my, you know, I did I my read homework, and I I realized Garbage. very quickly there's no winning here. No, not that not that it should be about winning, but you either 
admit you're a racist or if you deny it, that's proof of it. And so <laughs> you're sort of just left, you know, with no option. And and the thing is, it also, the, the thing that's also problematic is, like I said, it just flattens all white folks into one group or all categories, whatever that category might be. But there is a difference and there is a real difference between, you know, the guys marching in Charleston saying, you know, Jews will not replace replace us. us. Yeah. Jews will not replace us. And, you know, some white lady in San Francisco or in Marin County who, you know, maybe a little racist, but (laughs) he's probably never (laughs) hurt anyone. There's a difference and that difference matters. And to just sort of flatten, you know, that, that continuum doesn't matter anymore. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll take this to another area. Um, you know, in terms of sexual harassment and sexual violence. And this is what I think has happened with Me Too, which originally started as a movement to combat sexual violence. But as we all saw, it quickly turned into, well, he looked at me funny and he's just as bad. The continuum doesn't matter. Well, he's not. He's not just as bad. And explain to him I made you uncomfortable. You don't need to take his career and you don't. And, you know, the world is changing. You can probably explain, you know, I don't like it when you do that. And yeah. that'd be fine. It's yeah. not the same, but we've flattened the most minor sort of offense, which maybe to some people isn't even offense, and the most egregious. And you know what? It lessens the impact and it lessens our focus on those egregious harms. And that's the problem. The other issue, Great and this will bring it back to schools, is I would prefer to talk about what can we do about it. And I would argue that there has been nothing more structurally racist, and this will make people hate me, than closing and than closing schools for a year and a half, where the student body population is disproportionately, because it was largely urban public schools, mm-hmm. disproportionately black, brown, and low income. That to yeah. me is the definition of structural racism. So I, in combating these issues, because racism is very much alive and well would prefer to focus on actions that can actually make a difference and improving the public schools, first making sure they're open, but then improving them and ensuring that all children have access to a high quality education is a much more important action than me, you know, prostrating myself and begging (laughs) forgiveness. I don't think that helps. It doesn't help anyone. I don't think it does either. And I think that there's a neat, we could continue this conversation for three hours specifically the ideology, because if you look at a lot of the things we've talked about, schools, you know, DEI, safe space on college campuses, the ideology itself is there. And it starts with kids with trophies and it goes to children in college who need safe spaces. And then in, co- in universities, or excuse me, in corporate America, when someone's a slight, if you looked at me funny, you said my hair looks pretty, he made me feel weird. And so then to your point, it's you said the word guys. You said, hey, guys. Yeah, right. I mean, that kind of stuff. You're just like, oh, man. And so it's it's the difference between Al Franken and Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. That's right. right. So That's you're right. looking at that and say, well, there's a big difference, right? And we need right. to make sure we have Nasser. that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of the worst human being on planet Earth, who was the doctor for the USGA and, and molested 350 girls. I think um, over 500. Or yeah. 500. Yeah, it was just awful. And And I think that that's where... That's that's why I'm glad you wanted to get into the ideology versus just the the COVID piece is is that you have, and I need to I need to reinforce this. 
you turned out a million dollar severance package to silence you. And you said, no, thanks. I'm not going to take it. And I'm going to go talk and I'm going to go do things. And from the little bit that I've been attacked online over the last eight months, I can just share that I was impressed with your story to begin with. And I don't think I even mentioned it, but you were, you know, seven time champion. You were 1986 national champion, U.S. gymnastics on the women's uh, U.S. team for seven years. You went to Stanford. You have always been a very driven, highly productive and prolifically knowledgeable human being. You went to the industry in which I went to. So I know how hard that is to get to the top. You got to the top. You were offered the top spot as CEO, should you well, brain from speed. Well, yeah. like grooming you for that spot. It was held out, yeah. As a, Correct. As an if you would yeah. just kind of stop. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to right. overstate. But yes, I was Good certainly. Point. And all anyone had to do was look at the structure of the company and my performance. You know, anyone in business knew I was a candidate. Exactly. And so all of that, and I can say unequivocally, you never really want to say I would do something if I had this position, but I can pretty much guarantee that if I was offered a million dollars, shut up, I would take the million dollars. So I'm really impressed with you on that. And and this kind of gets me into, you just decided, and I don't I don't know you from Adam, but the idea there, maybe I should have said Eve and defend somebody. I, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not easily offended. <laughs> I know. You should but, hear what I've been called, not just in the last two years. The last two years have been bad. Uh, okay. But the names I was, one, called by my coaches, which I don't recommend, and I think those crossed over into abuse. But certainly the names I've been called in the last two years, you cannot offend me. <laughs> no, well, that's good. Yeah, if I with reading your memoir, I know I can't offend you because the, the, which the coaches were much worse than I was. But I, I mean it in the sense that you you came from this very rigorous, disciplined, and I don't know, I don't want to say, you know, conformity, but you... you oh, for sure. Right, this you did that. And yeah. then you did the same thing in corporate America. And then all of that's a sudden right. you're just done. It's like, well, I'm done. Yeah. Well, that, and that's one of the points, you know, I, I want to make my, my book, my new book comes Your out book. Uh, November 15th. Um, it's called Levi's Unbuttoned, but it is not just about Levi's. And it really is a memoir. And it goes back to my childhood about finding the courage to use your voice. And um, hopefully you know, can just kind of inspire folks to screw up their courage just a little bit and do it. We know 62% of Americans say they don't feel comfortable expressing their real views in public or at work. And yeah. this is, this is a, this is a problem. And if I can do it, I was raised in a culture in gymnastics of such extreme obedience. It's hard. It's sort of mind boggling for anybody to even fathom. I describe it in my first book, you which do. I know you read. It's, it's incredibly oppressive. And I was taught that, you know, I wasn't taught. It was just enforced every single yeah. day. You were bad if you said anything. You were bad if you resisted the abuse. You were, you know, you were a bad, bad girl. Well, if you You're gained bad two person. pounds, you were bad. If you I gained mean, that, a quarter pound. A quarter we pound, yeah. For a quarter of a pound. Um, and so it's a hard one fight for me to have kind of captured my own voice and to... And so I wasn't going to give it up because of the money. Now that puts me in a situation where I, you know, I have savings, but I don't have enough. I'm not, I'm a relatively young person. I've got four kids. I got to figure out what I'm <laughs> going to do going forward. But I, it was a long, hard struggle for me to kind of find my voice. And the first thing that I spoke out very publicly was the abuse in the sport. And I was 
really dragged for that while my company yes, supported me. Um, that was a really harrowing 10 years, frankly, until the Nasser story broke. And, and so I held that close as I spoke out about this and school. Now it's a much bigger stage. I had the whole world disagree with me rather than just the gymnastics <laughs> community. Um, but the world came around on that and the truth was outed. And people, of course, who, you know, called me all kinds of horrible names um, now pretend they always supported me, although they hate me again because of COVID. So, you know, it's all very confusing. <laughs> but I I do believe that the truth always, you know, wins out in the end, but somebody has to speak it. And it's certainly not just me. I mean, goodness, I was connected to brave moms and parents across the country who were doing the same thing and battling the same issues in their school district. And so they gave me strength and courage. Um, but I just felt... I, it just didn't feel worth it to me. It's a lot of money. It would certainly make my life much less stressful now, but, um, I worked too hard, you know, 30 years to kind of find my voice. I wasn't, I just wasn't going to give it up. Well, and that's why I wanted to mention it because I, I told you before that, you know, I just like you, I'm a big fan of Barry Wise and she actually wrote a, was a speech for the university of, of Austin. Her, yeah, her um, new university. Her new university of Austin, correct. And she said, and I'm going to just share these because you actually, she said that we need new leaders and the 10 things we need with new leaders are, and what makes you a founder in 21st century America are your ability to reject politics of resentment, defend the rule of law, use your own eyes and ears, to refuse to submit your relationship to political litmus test. You did that with your husband. <clears throat> Build things. And, I, and that was one of those things where these are the kind of the five, there's 10 of them, but this was the one where not only did you do all of those things, you defend free speech, you defended the rule of law, and you're now building things. And that's why I was wondering, you went away from the conformity of your competitive gymnastics and your the conformity of corporate America. And now you are, you launched your Substack, which is Say Everything, correct? That's not the name. And then your book, obviously, on Levi's Unbuttoned. And that to me is where I think we need more people like you to come out and voice this. And no matter where you end up, if you take another big corporate job or if you start your own company consulting, it's, I'm just want to let you know, I'm very impressed with your history. And I'm even more impressed with what you're doing because it was beyond brave to stand up to power leave the money on the table, deal with the Twitter mob, as you called it. And that's actually part, it's worth mentioning in your book. It's not only is it um, your book called uh, <clears throat> Levi's Unbuttoned, it's the woke mob, right? And I can't find my notes here. What is the took, subtitle? Took my job, but gave me my voice. The woke mob took my job, but gave me my voice. Yes. And I mean, I arguably I had my voice, but I, I chose, you have to choose over and over again to keep it. You have to choose over yeah. and over again to continue to speak out. And I think in that same speech that you referenced um, that Barry gave in the opening, she talks about how she's been out outspoken on some things, but not others. And she left others to other people, but she realized she can't do that anymore. And, you know, I do yeah. one, I'm really grateful that she gave me, um, you know, a, a, a platform to get my story out. And she's truly building something. And, you know, every day, if you don't subscribe to her subset, Common Sense, and, you know, listen to her podcast, honestly, you should, because there's a range of voices with 
dissenting views. And I think she's creating that space for open debate and dissent and for heterodox thinkers. Not sure I'm building anything yet, but I know that what guides me is just being able to say what I think, you know, um, and I have to, you know, it's only, it's not even been a year since I left my job. Um, and I've been in that culture for, you know, over, over 22 years. And so I'm sort of figuring out, I'm also making a documentary film about the impact to kids, um, from the school closures. And, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out as I, as I go, um, for sure, but I won't give up my voice. You know, I have gotten calls for some jobs and that's always where I start. Do you know my story? If so, <laughs> yeah, if you're okay talk. with it, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk. And, and sometimes they even are, but then when it gets right down to it, I mean, I've been asked in, in one interview, um, well, do you regret anything? And I think the answer that was desired was, well, yes, you know, I don't, I, you know, I regret how I went about it, but I don't, I, I mean, honestly, I, and there are loads of things in my life I regret. I'm not a person that doesn't have regrets, but I don't regret any of this. You know, I stand by everything I said. I stand by the way I said it. I, I don't have regret about how I said things. Um, it's been proven correct in the end. And to me, that just furthers the importance of needing to speak out on whatever issue you care about. Um, doesn't have to be the same as me. And yeah. I would support your right to do it, even if I disagree with you. Well, and I think that's what Barry does. I'm going to push back on you there. You, you said you're not okay. building anything. You wrote a memoir and that's you started true, a Substack and you're, doc, and you're actually filming a documentary or you're creating a documentary about what I'm took not, place. Yeah, I'm busy. I'm just... you're busy, busy. And that's, that, that's kind of the point. It doesn't matter what you do next. I think that what is impressive is, is the fact that you went out way out of a comfort zone. And that's why I mentioned your history because it's, it's worth mentioning. It's not it's not a typical history where you're just kind of loosey goosey and you're raised by gypsies. It's like you were in an unbelievably disciplined path all the way through your highly competitive world-class gymnastics career. And then you go to a, you know, stellar university like Stanford, which also teaches you, you know, the importance of discipline and rigor and, and study and homework and all that. And, and then obviously a very storied career in marketing and, and leadership. And so it's obviously very difficult for anyone to like just jump out of that and do all these things. So I just commend you for what you're doing on all these fronts because it's impressive. And I've written a memoir, so I know how hard that is. And it's not fun. You know, it, the writing's not fun. Dredging up the memories aren't fun. I mean, none of it's fun. So, no, I said to my husband, I'm never doing this again. No. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's brutal. And, and, I did it really, and I did yeah. it really fast. So, you know, that added to the difficulty and challenge, but I wrote the last one really fast too. I find when I have the story, it just kind of comes out of me. And I think, but you know, every choice, what to include, what not to look, I don't, as I said, at one point, this is not about grievance. You know, I'm not out to get anyone. I want Levi's to be successful. You don't have that vibe, by the way, just to be clear, you don't have the grievance vibe. Yeah. I want to talk about the bigger issues. And my story is you know, illustrative. And if that's a way in for people to understand and contemplate and kind of relate, then fine. And I toggle back and forth in the book between my story and the sort of broader cultural issues. Um, It just all feels too important to me. And um, yeah, so that's what I did. You got some good reviews. You're welcome. Michael Schellenberger gave you a great review. I'm sure he was one of your advanced reader copies. And then Dr. Phil, who you interviewed Mm -hmm. after you left, 
he also gave you a glowing review. So, you know, I look forward to reading your book. I look forward to seeing the documentary when it's done. And I wish you luck no matter what you do. You. I think you're a very strong and very inspiring woman. And so I just think whatever you can do and will do, uh, will continue to help folks. So thanks a lot thanks. for coming on the show. I really thanks. appreciate it. I will say you are the, you're very prepared, Read every, I, <laughs> it's impressive. You're very impressive. And thank you for having me. Good conversation. Well, thanks. thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.